Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. As usual, your host, Harry Kemsley, and my co-host, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Hi. So um, in recent podcasts, Sean, we've had a range of different topics, a range of different things to talk about. And one of the things that's come up previously that I'd like to revisit today is how does the open source environment help and work in more closed environments? And there's little more closed in the world than the North Korean environment. And I'm delighted this morning to introduce the listener to Christina Variali. Hello, Christina. Hi, Harry. Christina Variel is Senior Analyst on the Northeast Asia Country Intelligence Team. Before joining Jane's in April 2022, Christina spent six years in the proliferation and the nuclear policy team at the RUSI think tank, culminating in a short period as acting director. Prior to RUSI, she worked with the International Centre for Security Analysis at the Policy Institute, King's College London. Her work primarily focuses on researching and analysing North Korea's domestic security and stability, the country's WMD programmes, foreign relationships and the implications for security. So, Christina, clearly with that background, uh, there's a lot we could speak about with regard to North Korea. As As I said in my introduction, what I'm really keen to look at is how does the open source environment work in such a closed environment? as the North Koreans. Perhaps you can get us started for the listener just to give us a quick resume of what's going on in North Korea right now that's of interest and that you've learned from open sources. So North Korea at the moment is in a really, really interesting situation. Um, And I'm not just saying that as somebody that follows it closely. Um, (laughs) I think there's a lot going on in the country that is uh, likely to have impacts on the region and potentially globally as well in in the coming years and months. Um, At the start of 2020, North Korea took the decision to fully close all of its land, sea and air borders in response to the the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which which stopped pretty much all all trade for a a significant period of time. Um, We have seen maritime trade return, but in terms of land borders and air borders, they're, they're almost still completely closed. There's been one exception of um, the the border reopening to allow the new Chinese ambassador to Pyongyang to enter the country. Um, but aside from that, there's been no movement of, of people coming in or out, um, which, which has quite a significant impact on the country. So we're not just talking about uh, diplomats, North Korean diplomats that aren't able to return. We're talking about significant... Uh, foodstuff imports, fertilizer imports, um, even illicit trade has uh, has been impacted by these closures. So you know we don't think of North Korea as a country that has vast uh, economic relations around around the world, um, but it does rely on its its illicit networks to access um, revenue generation and important resources to to keep the country um, alive. Quite simplistically. Mm, and the, the impact that the border closure has had is, is all of that has stopped. Um, and that's going to have some really negative consequences for, for the country. Like I said, food security situation is, is probably quite precarious right now. But the impact that that's had on our ability to assess the country in open sources uh, has also been quite stark. Mm-hmm. 
the the border closure um, not only impacted trade, but has resulted in on the ground reporting um, also also coming to an end. So uh, embassies in North Korea had to close. So the UK embassy, for example, the Swedish embassy, um, they are no longer operating and open. Um, UN aid workers that are on the were on the ground in North Korea um, have also had to withdraw. They've not been in the country since about uh, I think March or May 2021. So that means we're not getting those more accurate insights as to what's going in, what's happening on on the ground. Yeah. And you know the the reports that we've got from from organisations like um, like the UN have now diminishing value uh, because they've not been produced in, in the last few years. And I think the direction we see North Korea going in and some of its narratives and its control over retaining some of the uh, measures that were put in place following COVID. Um, suggests that actually we're maybe not going to get access to those types of reports and information again anytime soon. Right. So when we're thinking about the current uh, ability, our current ability to look at what's going on domestically in North Korea, there is definitely a a current challenge in, in what resources and information we, we have available. That said, uh, it's definitely not all doom and gloom that we do have resources uh, and information that we can access that help our understanding and assessments of um of that picture north maybe korean we could, maybe we could come cool. to sorry christina maybe we can come to the how you do what you do in this stark environment in just a second yeah. but sean i just want to uh, underscore the importance of this conversation um given your background it's very clear that north korea has been and remains a country of great importance to global politics global security situations of course, many eyes have been focused on other parts of the world, not least Ukraine, arguably China and so on, and the uh, the power struggle going on with the US. Maybe North Korea to some extent, to some extent has fallen off some people's radars. From your background, Sean, just give us your own assessment of how important it is that we do get insight into what's happening in China, into uh, Korea, sorry, given just how important that is. Yeah, so as you know, Harry, um, it's one of the what we call the um, primary four, four plus one priorities for definitely the five eyes, particularly the US, actually. Um, so, as I said, the, the four plus one is China, Russia, DPRK, Iran, and then the counter-terrorist challenge. But as you as you uh, will all know, you know, the, the focus on China right now is huge in the US and the focus on um and Russia as well for obvious reasons. So DPRK, yeah, I mean, I've been looking at DPRK since um, <clears throat> 1989 in the intelligence community, and it has always been a real challenge. Now, the, the problem is that it's about the intent. So threat equals capability plus intent. Understanding what it is they're really trying to do is really important. And, and we're not necessarily there yet because it's such a closed and difficult intelligence target. Is it all about survival of the regime? You know, and, and probably the answer is yes, but it's yes, but. You know, you don't develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear capability just to protect your regime, or do you? Um, but for me, it's survival of the regime and and all of the above as well. So yes, it's really important, and it's probably not getting the attention that necessarily um, it would deserve always because of the distractions of whatever else is happening well, if, in the world. If open source um, were to be a service to the IC, the intelligence community, from what Randy Nixon was saying to us recently in that podcast we had with him, it would be in a complementary way where we would provide 
insight, perhaps on the flanks where agencies were less able to spend resource because they were so focused on a really high priority issue, or indeed it would be in terms of indicators and warnings. And just to pick up on that point you made there, Sean, about intent, I don't want to go straight to intent, Christina, because that's a big topic in itself. I want to go back to the question I was asking earlier, but we're going to get to intent eventually, because that's ultimately the indicator that what we might need to understand where this is all going. Why are they testing so many missiles and so on? But let's go back to the the question in mind from before. Given that it was already closed, that it's become more and more difficult, your word was stark. It's a stark challenge that we have now. How do we do it? Because I know that you are producing monthly reports on what's happening in Korea, which are being used by a, a range of different uh, customers in a range of different ways. How are you doing that? How are you getting those insights that you need from the open source environment? So my, my first port of call when trying to understand and assess what's going on in North Korea is always state media. Um, there is a variety of state media outlets that we can look at, all with slightly different intentions, some more geared towards uh, international audience, audiences, policymakers in different capitals, some related to the domestic audience in North Korea, um, others related to trying to influence and persuade um, maybe not at the government level, but at the sub-government level around the world, influence and persuade people to be sympathetic to North Korea's aims, to support the regime. Um, so looking across the spectrum of, of the, the content North Korea puts out there is, is incredibly valuable. They, they, there is a lot of that available online that we can access. Um, it, it absolutely has its limitations. We have to understand that the, the content North Korea puts online that we can access um, is there because they've they've chosen to put it there. Right. Um, so that is that is a fundamental uh, limitation. But it's also very, very uh, highly controlled and crafted. So that actually gives us a really good insight into uh, what message they want us to be reading. Um, that doesn't mean we should take that message at face value, sure, but that sure. means that we can understand that that message is, is being put out there for a reason. Um, and it can help us understand give us a starting point to understand why they might want us to to, to be uh, consuming that narrative. Right. And once you start to do this over a period of time, and I think this is incredibly important when looking at North Korean state media, um, it, it must be done over a period of time to look at the trend. You can then you can then monitor and, and, and see changes in narratives. Right. Um, is the language being used the same? Is the is the um, the person attributed to a particular statement the same? Is it a person that is higher ranked within within the leadership and the party? Is it a person that's potentially lower ranked? Is it a statement that's come from a party official or a government official? Um, and all of these things give us little clues as to what North Korea intends us to, to take away from those messages. Um, right. So that that is really, really important. That said, what North Korea says and does does not happen in a vacuum. And what North Korea says and does can sometimes also be two very different things. So looking at other sources and the broader context um, is also imperative to understanding state media. What's happening domestically? So, for example, um, narratives that we've seen over the last three years now, three and a half years, should always be understood in the context of North Korea has its borders closed. What does that mean for the country? Right. Um, you can't separate those those contexts. Um, same for the region. What's going on in the region? Um, what's the relationship between China and the US, for example? Mm -hmm. And how is that implicating the US presence in the region, either directly or indirectly to not the North Korean threat? And how is North Korea reacting to that? What narrative is that helping to um, 
to underpin for the North Korean regime. Um, And again, then what North Korea puts out influences that context and influences those circumstances. They kind of they should always be considered in a in a package. We should never be considering these things separately. The the other thing that that I will also look at um, is specialist news sites. Um, So, for example, Daily NK, uh, Radio Free Asia, they have access to sources within North Korea. They can be incredibly insightful, uh, but mm-hmm. they can also pose challenges in that they are often anecdotal. Um, right. So the, the the comments and the quotes that sometimes those sources have access to um, are reflective of an individual situation or, you know, a, a local situation. Um, they might not necessarily give access to the picture of the situation across the entire country. Um, and they don't always give access to good insights to those leadership structures. Um, the the insight they can give is is you know what's happening in in those towns and those villages and how those people are perceiving their situation, and right. um, and that that's really important and valuable, uh, but again it must be understood in that context. And then the the final thing I wanted to kind of add to that information piece of of the the types of narrative sources that we look at um, would be defective reporting. Again, I think there are there is tremendous value in looking at defective reports. Defective reports are are incredibly valuable. They do give us insight that we might not otherwise be able to to access. Um, But again, defectors have left the country for a reason. Right. Um, So we have to also understand their position within that context. Um, Defectors have also declined in number quite dramatically um, over the last 10-ish years. Um, data, I think, from the, the Ministry of Unification in South Korea for 2022 um, had only 67 defectors entering the country, uh, entering South Korea. And obviously, we can put that in the context of um, of COVID and those sort of things, not just in North Korea, but also in the countries that North Koreans leaving the country would be, um, would be experiencing. So China, for example. Yeah. But if we look at the trend prior to COVID, the, the decline was also was also well on its way. The trend of people leaving North Korea, uh, that number was declining prior to COVID. Um, right. So I think in, in 2019, South Korea reported just over a thousand North Koreans entering the country, which was down from about 2,700 in, in 2011. Mm. Um, so so quite a quite a dramatic change. And you know, defectors, we we have to understand that yeah, that that information is is very valuable. It will likely continue to decline, especially as we see North Korea. I would say very likely continue to retain some of their COVID-19 restrictions on the movement of people, the movement of uh, of trade coming in and out of the country um, because of the benefit that's had for enhancing their social control within within the country. Um, I would imagine that defectors will, the number of defectors uh, will likely stay quite low in the coming years. So quite a few different um, sources, despite the fact that the sources you previously had have somewhat gone away because of the COVID and the restrictions on that. Sean, it sounds to me, though, like the situation in North Korea is still somewhat impenetrable for us, particularly where we're getting less and less defectors. It still feels a little bit like that's quite hard for us to see beyond inferences from state media from third-party news media around it and so on, it still feels somewhat impenetrable. Yeah, definitely. There's quite a lot to unpack there from what Christina was saying, but you're right, and that's why we call it intelligence, not information, because it is piecing together those 
you've heard me say this before pieces of jigsaw you don't know if it's the same jigsaw it may not have any pictures on it but you still got to put it together as much as you can but uh, there was two pieces that really struck out for me in, in, in Christine's bit. The first was the narrative in terms of understanding who the narrative is aimed at. Is it an internal one to keep the population you know, mm-hmm. uh, compliant um, or is it external to, to message you know, against us? But I think if you flip that as well, is looking at what their reaction is to external stimuli, for example, you know, joint South Korean, Japanese and, and US exercises, and you're going to see a reaction and what that reaction is will tell you quite a lot about whether it feels threatened about whether it's feeling belligerent or you know it is what sort of state that the mind is in but going back to the the sources this is a classic case with dprk that you need every single source you possibly can to try and understand it as much as you can and that includes in the open source domain so for example you know we've always we've always used imagery quite quite heavily with uh, North Korea because you can actually see stuff. Now, that's not to say, I mean, they're incredibly surveillance aware and they know when satellites are passing, et cetera, et cetera. But there's only so much you can do. So, for example, for reasons I won't go into, I was quite looking at the the border, the northern border crossing between, and excuse my pronunciation, but Sunuiju and Dandong, which is a really major road crossing point between North Korea and China. Now, in recent years, as Christina said, the, the, the huge amounts of trucks that used to go to and fro just, just have stopped because of COVID and other things. Now, that indicates very much now, obviously, North Korea is very heavily dependent on, on Chinese trade. If that's not happening, how are they managing to, um, you know, sustain themselves? So imagery is one side, but, uh, but you know, the, the whole uh, messaging and the narrative, I think, is, is, a, is another piece that is really important to get into. And as Christina said, you know, the, we can't ignore the defector reports. Now there's a real there's a real gotcha, and and you know that I have healthy skepticism with some of the human, because human is just about what's what an individual either thinks or wants to message. Now by definition, as Christina said, people that come across uh, clearly want to because they want to get away from it, so they're going to uh, have a negative perspective. That's not to say they're wrong, but they all and I love the way Christina put it. You know, it's it's about the individual and how they think and what they think. Yeah, let me just pick up on that point there, Christina, with you, because you mentioned it and Sean's just sort of underscored it for me. You talked about, let's use the state media as the focus for this question. In the state media, we're reading and listening to what they're saying. And through that, you're telling me that you can detect because of who's saying it or exactly how they're saying it, the words they're using, the lexicon, what the message is for the audience that you believe it's intended for. That doesn't strike me as... um, a trivial thing to be able to do. That feels like one of those things that takes a long time to really get underneath. That's not something you could pick up tomorrow and start to think about. It's one of those things that strikes me as being a long-term endeavor. Is that is that a fair fair assumption? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, as I as I mentioned before, it's it's understanding and developing a picture of the trend as well. Um, I think it would be incredibly difficult to, for the first time open North Korean state media, read an article and make an assessment on what their thinking is, what their intent is, based on reading just one article. Um, The the trend and monitoring the the narratives and the the language is so important for understanding those those shifts um, or or potentially lack of shifts. It's not always just about the specific content of individual articles, 
but as a collective, the the particular topics that state media also wants to be talking about. Um, So, for example, in in 2016, um, there was a good number of articles related to uh, North Korea and China's engagement. So talking about sports teams, you know, visiting and exchanging musical troops, visiting each country and having exchanges. Then all that disappeared around the time when China supported uh, additional UN Security Councils following North Korea's nuclear missile tests. We obviously cannot reach hard conclusions, Mm -hmm. um, but you can take that change and you can say, okay, well, what's the circumstance? in which this change has occurred. We can look to the international context and say, well, this is potentially one factor. Um, And then you can look for other pieces of evidence that might suggest that the relationship between North Korea and China has changed. Um, So it's about the the trends in the actual written words, but also the trends in in the topics as well. Um, You know, we can see that with, for example, at the moment, um, a lot of the content in state media is referring to managing agriculture in the country and developing agriculture, responding to extreme weather events, preparing the country for extreme weather events. That's not necessarily unusual for this time of year, but it demonstrates that actually there's there's an awareness that this is an issue for the country um, and that they they want to be talking about it and publishing it in, in state media. And that has maybe outbalanced in, in the last month or so uh, content related to military tensions with, with the US or South Korea. Yeah. Um, but again, it's about identifying the, those patterns and those trends so we can really understand um, any any minor changes, um, identify them early, so we're then monitoring them and tracking them, and understanding whether or not they're an anomaly or they're about to become a new a new pattern as well. Yeah, I think that's that's really the point for me. Um, really well described by Christina Sean, and in the fact that I, I don't doubt that our agencies are all around the world in the Western world looking very intently at what's going on and making their own assessments. But I I know this is not a one person sport there is lots and lots of interpretations that could be going on and that blend of what christina is uh, describing with her team and how they're interpreting the nuances that might be available to us and I, I particularly like that connection you've made there christina between outside events and then reading the reactions and trying to see those connections again that's sure that's not something that happens quickly that's something you can only begin to understand over a long period of time. And I think there is a complementarity, is there not, Sean, between what Christina is doing from open sources and what other others might be doing from more exquisite sources? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there are two other elements to this. One of them is the regional perspective. So, you know, the West have a, you know, much as we try to get inside the cultures of other other countries and regions, you know, we're not that close. Um, so getting the South Korean perspective, getting the Japanese perspective, uh, and even to an extent the Chinese perspective as well, because you know they they are obviously they they um, feel quite close to DPRK in some ways, but they feel ob- obligated to support them. But they're not necessarily their best friends because you know if the worst ever happened and there was a conflict between North and South Korea, the first thing would happen there would be probably millions of refugees heading north into China. They don't want that either. So Mm. looking at their state media and what they're saying about North Korea, I think is important as well. And just while I'm on the the regional perspective, one of the really powerful pieces for open source intelligence with this particular target, North Korea, is the way it facilitates intelligence sharing. Because, you know, each of the nations involved, um, you know, without going into detail, I have been involved in negotiations between some of the countries that are very interested. 
they they don't necessarily have any uh, or they don't or didn't have strong intelligence sharing um, treaties and arrangements with each other at this very highly classified level as a collective. But if you can use open source intelligence to say, right, and then give everybody a consistent and coherent view on what's happening, that is as close to what they think in exquisite sources as possible. That really is powerful in facilitating a strong discussion. And and I know because I've been involved in those discussions. Yeah, we, we've seen that happen, with Sean, uh, in other conversations, look at what's happened around Ukraine, where non-traditional allies are in desperate need of intelligence support from some of the uh, more capable intelligence cap- uh, countries around the world, and indeed are getting it, but often by use of open source content such as that which James produces and reports. It's that, that it is shareable, it is usable in a, in a sense that is much, much easier to do than we're finding from classified sources. So, Christina, because time is always going to evaporate on us, I'm going to pivot us round to a point we made earlier in terms of intent. Um, Sean described intent as being alongside capability as an as a way of deciding how much threat there really is from activities we're seeing. So, help us understand how intent of a regime such as that we see in North Korea can be understood by open sources. You've talked a little bit about state media and how we might interpret that, but how else could we look at that specific question of what is in the mind, what are they really trying to do in North Korea from open sources? So I think I think that's an excellent question. Um, my my starting point would always be the, those state media, you know, outlets and content. But then I think comparing and contrasting that with something that Sean mentioned earlier, actually, in, in satellite imagery. Um, does does the action match the words? You know, taking taking a, an example of the nuclear program, for example, the the North Koreans might state uh, that they are looking to, or you know, in in 2018, they could state in a in a press conference with Trump that they were looking to commit to suspending some activity with their nuclear program. Um, which can then lead to some people interpreting that as being a cessation of all activities across the nuclear program. Uh, but then you can look at satellite imagery and see some of the nuclear facilities still in operation. Um, so that suggests that the intent of actually rolling back or limiting their nuclear capability was right. maybe not as it was portrayed in, in the narrative. So I think that's really that's really important. Um, I think on intent, the other thing that I think is worth is worth saying is that intentions are not static they change yep um so although sean mentioned the the kind of the long-term um intention of maintaining the regime maintaining the kim family's dynasty and their power uh, and not necessarily changing the internal bureaucratic and leadership structures of the country um the intention of what north korea is hoping to achieve uh, it is going to change with long-term and short-term goals. Um, and I think we've seen that in, for example, nuclear negotiations where North Korea has exchanged some concessions on its nuclear program for food aid. That should never be interpreted as North Korea saying that we want to give up our nuclear weapons program, um, that food is actually more important and we've changed our position on what gives us security. That to me just says, well, right now we've identified a, a priority and we've identified that 
engaging in negotiations with other countries is the best way to address that priority. Right. I think the ability to think broadly about North Korea's intentions is beneficial. Um, you know, we can we can look right back to the early days of the regime where the intention might have been to reunify the peninsula under North Korean control. Um, I think it's very unlikely that that is now part of North Korea's intent, given the disparities in development in, between the two countries. Sure. Um, I think the regime will be very aware that they are probably quite unlikely to be able to um, absorb South Korea as it is with its development and its economic model um, under the, the North Korean leadership. Um, and also the, the cost of doing so um, sure. is, I would say, very likely uh, not that appealing to, to the leadership in North Korea. Um, so I think, yeah, thinking about intent as a as a flexible thing um, rather than something that is is very static and very rigid um, and everything North Korea does is is working towards that one particular goal. That said, I, I would I would also agree with Sean that, you know, the, the longevity and the survival of the regime is is, I think, very likely always going to be that underpinning priority. Uh, but looking at how those actions versus words balance against each other and compare and contrast, I think gives us a good in, a good indication of uh, what the short term and long term intent might be. Yeah, perfect, Sean. Uh, and that's just uh, linked to um, necessity and pragmatism as well. You know, if they if if we see another famine and there are indications that we may be in there, then they just cannot sustain their own population. Then, you know, what option does he have but to start being a little bit more conciliatory? Um, so understanding, you know, the the overall intent in terms of the pragmatic side. I mean, I, I look at, I was lucky enough to visit the border area and there is a huge international railway station just on the border with South Korea. I mean, it's got it's even got timetables as well as it's got everything there. But of course, the South Koreans, you know, you, you talk to a South Korean, and say, yeah, it's a matter of when we open up, not if. Actually, there's gauge issues. There are all sorts of issues. And of course, the North Koreans are nowhere near it. But you things like if there was any movement towards, you know, opening that sort of stuff. I mean, we'd, we're a long way away from that now, but that would indicate the fact that Although it may not be palatable, it might be something they have to do to sustain their own population. That's a bit of an extreme example, but it's that sort of thing where, you know, the trade uh, talks that happen on and off and the opening up of particular, um, I'm not sure what you call them, but they're, they're almost like trade cities where you can actually exchange some of the technology and there are North Koreans and South Koreans working together. That goes in peaks and troughs and, and as, it's as much about pragmatism as it is about um, philosophy. So, Sean, Christina, as always, time will evaporate on us. So let's start to bring our thoughts towards uh, summing up the one takeaway for the audience. I think for me, Sean, Christina, and I'm going to go first, um, the one takeaway that I really want to underscore is this idea that with an enduring look at even a closed environment, you can get to a situation where you understand the trends, you understand the implication of what you're seeing, hearing, not seeing, not hearing. And that you can start to form those hypotheses about the potential futures in the in the foreseeable future. You can begin to understand what they might be. For me, that's a really important takeaway. Christina, what's your one takeaway for the audience? So I think it would be the importance of trends and patterns and building that picture over time. Um, that then helps you understand what you what you know, but also what you don't know. 
Uh, and I think that's that's incredibly important to identify those gaps. Um, and then that helps you bound potential hypotheses um, potential scenarios for, for what might be. Um, so by looking at those patterns and trends, almost ring fence more likely and less likely uh, options, scenarios, outcomes um, to understand what's what's going on in the country. In amongst all that uh, trend analysis that you've talked about doing, what's the what's the one thing that can drive that can really help us understand or potentially understand where, where this is going? So I think the the point I would really like to make with trends and patterns is that we're not looking to reach hard conclusions. We're not looking for definitive assessments about North Korea or what their intent is or what's going on in the country. We're looking to develop boundaries and hypotheses um, that are more or less likely um, to develop a set of scenarios that could indicate what is or isn't happening using the um, sources that we have to help bound those hypotheses. It's incredibly important to make sure that we are um, not just pursuing one narrative or one conclusion, because um, then we can also fall into pitfalls of confirmation bias as well. So we're looking right. to generate options and possibilities and understand which is more or less likely. Perfect. Sean? I guess mine's a variation of what Christina said, actually. It's, it's understanding where OSINT fits into a particular intelligence problem. Uh, and and I'm, what I mean by that is that OSINT isn't always a substitute for the exquisite highly classified stuff you know and it can't answer everything all the time it certainly can't well, no intelligence can but in this case it is exactly as Christina said having that understanding the deeper understanding of the of the trends and of the demographics and and the you know the internal tensions that, that make things work to support the intelligence community as opposed to in other cases where we've seen that OSINT can take the lead with the you know the exquisite stuff um adding that extra so what value so it's just understanding where OSIT fits into any given challenge yeah great point thank you sean christina thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast around north korea it is a very interesting and very important discussion that we've had about how we get to look look inside what appears to be a closed box um as i've said we've taken away quite a few uh, good points there what I'd like to do in the future, maybe we'll invite you back for a second conversation, is I think there are probably things happening in South and North Korea today that will have real implications for the coming years. Maybe, as you said in your summing up there, some of those big issues that are facing all of us in the world, like climate change, might start driving, to use Sean's word, more pragmatism. If that's true, and we can see indicators of that starting to emerge in the work that you're doing. Let's have that conversation and let's see where those indicators take us in terms of uh, where we might look in the future. But to finish with, Christina, thank you again for your time today and for your expertise. We look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Sean, thank you as always. And thank you to the listener for taking the time with us. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.